0: welcome to Peach Pod, Georgia politics podcast. My name is Kyle Hayes and I am your host. Today we have a special treat for y'all because we are putting Peach Pod on the bench and we are bringing back the Misery Index, which is the old original OG Peach Pod sports podcast. And to do that, I am joined by our regular Peach Pod hosts, Luke Boggs and Megan Payne. Luke and Megan, how are y'all? Go dogs! Go Tigers! But also... We are bringing off the bench, just like when Michael Jordan took his talents to Washington, D.C. for one last little ride, we're bringing back John Carolyn from the Misery Index. John, how are you? Hey, Kyle. It's good to be back. Welcome back to the podcasting world.
1: It's good to be back. I'm I'm enjoying being back here to talk about a uh, pretty incredible week of sports and a little bit of sports and politics, maybe a little bit together as well.
0: So the reason we're doing this is... Every year about this time, at least every year since we shelved the misery index, I have gotten to this point in the college football season and always wanted to bring it back, but we never quite have the time to do it. But this last weekend in college football was one of the most incredible weekends, at least for the biggest game of the season, and that was LSU finally dethroning Alabama. I know, it
2: was so awesome!
0: (laughs) So we're going to talk a little bit about that. We're going to give Megan a chance to celebrate Megan, notable LSU graduate that she is. We are also going to talk a little bit about Georgia's victory over Missouri and the collision course that Georgia and LSU appear to be on. And then we'll tie this back into a little bit of Georgia politics because there are there is a little bit more sports and politics news that we've got since we talked about the NCAA a few weeks ago. And that is that it seems likely that the state legislature will consider a vote to legalize sports gambling in the state of Georgia. Um, So we're going to talk a little bit about that. But let's go and dive in here. So Megan, your long Baton Rouge nightmare is finally over. Riding an offense that just wouldn't quit, LSU finally dethroned Alabama in a 46-41 thriller in Tuscaloosa. Tiger quarterback Joe Burrow almost certainly had his Heisman moment in this game as he led LSU's rebuilt offense. And we saw all this while we while we noticed some continued big game struggles for Alabama quarterback to a Vailoa, Megan, let's just hear how much of a load is off your shoulders right now. How did you feel when LSU finally dethroned the
2: Crimson tide? Woo. Go Tigers. I mean, we have been waiting to beat them for so long and they stole our freaking coach. I know he went to the dolphins first. I know, but like they stole our coach and they had it come in, and finally, after a few years of not being able to show them, we showed them.
0: John, what was your uh, your reaction coming out of this game and and the first time that LSU has topped Alabama? I think in like eight years.
1: Yeah, it's it's been eight years. It's been since that 2011 regular season game of the century was the last time the nine six game that uh, that was the last time that LSU beat Alabama. They went on to lose in the matchup in the national bcs title game for the first time we've seen a regular season rematch kind of there uh they went to to lose without crossing the 50 and then this game ever since then has just been a pretty one-sided affair and to see to just have the idea that lsu and bama that the, the changing of the guard would come after that last win being nine to six being a 46-41 game with some opportunities for even more points if just the ball bounces a different way a couple of times it was it's just incredible to see how things have changed in the SEC the big dumb football conference uh, to see what's happened there and see the change that's happened is incredible. And I think just the the change and how these teams look is the really the thing to take away.
0: Yeah, let's talk a little bit about how we got to this finish, because I think it really is emblematic about how much SEC football has changed. So during the first half of this game, the first half was really, in my view, characterized by uncharacteristic mistakes from Alabama. On Alabama's first drive of the game, to Tua Tagovailoa, Valoa fumbled the ball seemingly inexplicably in the red zone and ended up turning the ball over to LSU. Uh, but later on in the, in the first half Alabama's punter, just like also seemingly inexplicably dropped the punt before he kicked the ball away. I mean, I and don't think we'd right- be
1: that surprised about LSU having some issues and kicking in special teams and big games that tends to happen or about Alabama. Sorry.
0: That is true. That is a little bit traditional for Alabama and Alabama was making mistakes as LSU was continuously, relentlessly pushing the ball down the field. I think if you're a Georgia fan who happened to be watching this game, it would have been notable to see a vertical passing game that was so aggressive and really shocking how LSU made it look easy to move the ball against Alabama. Then as you got to the end of the first half, LSU clearly had momentum. Joe Burrow led a fantastic drive in the last two minutes that gave LSU the lead going into half. Uh, The ball ended up back in Alabama's hands, but you kind of thought that the half would come to an end after that. But Tua Tagovailoa made another mistake. He threw an interception in his own uh, end of the field, and LSU was able to capitalize again and go into halftime with a 20-point lead. Megan, how confident were you feeling going into the half with a 20-point lead for the Tigers?
2: So I was feeling pretty confident, but I also know that the Tigers are called the Cardiac Cats for a reason, and we are kind of known for some third quarter mishaps and some third quarter drama. So I never count a game as over until, you know, we get into the fourth quarter and really see where the game is going, because we have lost games because of how we play in the third quarter.
0: Luke, was this at all reminiscent to Georgia's SEC championship loss or the national championship loss where they raced out to a lead and and at times looked like the better team, but you go into halftime not knowing exactly how Alabama might respond.
3: Yeah, I think that's definitely true. That's kind of how I was looking at this game. But but also, I feel like this was a Alabama I hadn't seen before. I I hate Alabama with a burning passion to the point where I always record their games just in case they lost so I could go and watch it if it happened. Yes, (laughs) yes. And... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so with that said i always watch a little bit of alabama just to kind of see how they're playing because i just kind of assume we're gonna have to deal with them at some point if uh, Georgia's having a good season like i i didn't recognize the alabama that i saw this weekend because they were just bad they were just aggressively bad they were making incredibly bad play calls they were uh really really sloppy and the thing that uh Uh, you know, someone I was watching the game with said that I I really found is true. I think is explains a lot of this game is that like Alabama so rarely deals with like pressure and conflict and like mishaps that like they literally don't know how to deal with it. And it's you know they're one of those teams that when they're under pressure and they're behind, they end up just getting like angry and sloppy, and they get a lot of penalties. And you know a lot of their players seem to just like lose focus when they're under pressure which is like what you would think is the opposite of a really high performing team but i, I kind of think the uh this is like the alabama legacy uh really uh hurting their team rather than helping it and i think that's especially true since you know and we haven't pointed this out yet i don't think is you know like this was a home game for them this is one it wasn't them in tiger territory you know freaking out and getting um, you know freaked out by the crowd or losing, you know, losing uh, their morale because of the crowd. Like this was their crowd and they were behaving the way they were.
2: Right. I'm going to jump in because I want to you mentioned the penalties. And I heard a stat when I was watching the game that said something about the Bama team having a high percentage of penalties as compared to other football teams in general. And I wonder if anyone else heard that. But the other thing that I want to note is that I am so used to seeing SEC teams, particularly Alabama, have their defense look like a brick wall where you can run your guys at them all night long and they will just get slammed in the brick wall, stopped in their tracks. And the Bama D was just not really all that present, nor was LSU's, quite frankly. It was an incredibly high-scoring game, considering what I'm used to from both sides of that ball.
1: No, I think the thing that about these penalties and the other miscues that we've talked about that really is kind of telling is, and very un Nick Saban like this wasn't like the process that he kind of always talks about. Is they were unforced. The Tua uh, turn the ball over, as I've heard him be called. Is <laughs> his his first turnover was no one was touching him. No one was in a yard, no one was in a yard or two of him. The ball just popped out of his hands as he was repositioning it. There was an unforced error, something that... That one might have just been bad luck. But the other errors we saw, there was a... Joe Burrow threw a pick sometime in the second half, I believe. A bad interception. And it was called back because Alabama had 12 men on the field. Because there was some sort of substitution issue. And that's the type of thing that falls squarely on the coaching staff that I was just kind of blown away to see that coming from Nick Saban. I don't know if that's a result of the fact that he basically had to replace his entire coaching staff over the offseason. I don't know if that's some sort of complacency or laziness, something I never thought I'd associate with that organization at all, but it was just that something that's been unprecedented in this era of Alabama football, except for maybe their uh, loss in one of the bowl games to Oklahoma after they're left out of the playoffs one year. And that was all chalked up to them not caring about the game. Uh, because it wasn't a national title, that's not what they play for. But like in a game that actually really matters, this hasn't happened to them before. The They've been outplayed. They've been outcoached. They haven't shot themselves in the foot like this.
0: I think the thing that stood out to me was I haven't seen an offense put Alabama's defense on its heels the way that LSU's offense has. I mean, really, there hasn't been an offense— This good in the Southeastern Conference, with maybe the exception of some of the good Alabama teams, particularly the year that Tua had last year, there hasn't been this good of an offense that Alabama has faced. Alabama's toughest games in the SEC have been against Georgia. And Georgia, as all of us know, uh, all too well, does not play this vertical passing game offense does not really put defenses on their heels the way that LSU's tempo did. And so I think that might have something to do with it. But I think that it was interesting to watch Alabama respond in the second half. Uh, The first drive in the second half, they got that sort of strip fumble interception from Joe Burrow, and they were able to sort of halt LSU's momentum. I think if LSU had taken the ball on their first drive of the second half and marched down the field, this one could have been over a lot sooner than it was. But the thing that Georgia fans have learned over and over again is that you can punch Alabama first, but they're going to take your best punch and then they're going to come back. And the thing that Georgia has failed to do so many times is take Alabama's punch back and hang in there. And what LSU did, despite not scoring at all in the third quarter, they didn't score until uh, 10 minutes left in the fourth quarter in the second half. They hung in there and took Alabama's best shots and they were able to basically just hold serve as teams started to go back and forth towards the end of the second half. Um, the big place where that stood out to me was the plays that Joe Burrow made in the latter part of the second half. There was some reporting, I think it was in the athletic that said uh, that Joe Burrow had his headset on as Alabama's offense started to heat up and and make this game a lot tighter He had his headset on when all the coaches were saying, put the ball in Burrow's hands. We want the ball in Burrow's hands as this thing comes to an end. And then on LSU's last drive, Burrow was making plays with his arm, with his feet. He really led that offense and held serve against Alabama when so many other teams have crumbled under Alabama's pressure.
2: That Burrow booty, though
0: he's been
1: incredible this year it's been really special to watch him a a player who apparently wasn't going to get the starting job or didn't get the starting job up at ohio state it's it's just been really impressive to see what he's been able to do with this team um and i think a lot of that credit has to go to especially with the change from last year where he was totally serviceable but not exceptional a lot of that credit has to go to joe brady as the new uh not officially the offensive coordinator, but passing game coordinator and quarterback coach that uh, Ed Ogeron and Steve Ensminger brought in in the offseason who's just turned this offense around. And the, the play calls they're making, the route concepts they're running, it's a lot of NFL stuff, a lot of high-level stuff. I'm not the expert on those, but just the, the people that are are just heaping a lot of praise on it. And the ability to see Ed Ogeron, a former washout at Ole Miss, Turn into this type of coach where he's calling, where he's allowing his coaches to call this type of game. It's just awesome to see. It's a ton of fun. It's exactly what the SEC needs in order to maintain the relevance, both in terms of results and entertainment value.
2: 100%. And Ogeron has changed as a coach so much. Um, He gave an interview relatively early on of taking on the LSU head coaching job, talking about how much he has had to change his coaching mentality in order to coach a team well, be a head coach of a team in general, but also coach a team um, like LSU. And so I just appreciate him coming on and like doing the bang-up job that he's doing. He's a phenomenal coach for us.
0: Well, actually, The Athletic ran a really uh, interesting article before the Alabama-LSU game that talked about Ed Orgeron's kind of uniquely progressive philosophy as a coach. Not only did they bring in Joe Brady to revolutionize LSU's offense, basically put in a lot of NFL concepts that have – that defenses across the conference have not been able to stop all year, but they did things like shorten LSU practices um, because they were finding that players putting in too much time in practice were actually wearing their bodies out, were more likely to get injured. And uh, Orgeron was credited for having this great sense of how, much to push players in practice and then exactly when to dial it back so that you don't have unnecessary injuries or, or players get burnt out early in the year. But they've also done some really interesting stuff that I had not heard of before. They did a study of LSU receivers to evaluate this theory that some players, some of their receivers will catch the ball easier at different angles because one, the the vision in one eye is better than the other. So it actually matters a lot for some players the angle at which the ball is coming at them in terms of their ability to catch it. And they're one of just a few schools in the nation that are using what is basically a robot quarterback called the seeker that increases the number of reps that receivers can get.
2: The seeker, like in Harry Potter?
0: Yeah, I thought it was funny that that was what it was called. It's It's been really interesting in the SEC. Georgia, to me, strikes me as maybe one of the only schools left that is so set in its ways that they don't really evolve or have not evolved into this new high-paced, high-scoring offensive game that college football is increasingly becoming. Um, LSU was also one of these schools prior to some of these changes Orgeron has made. Alabama was one of these schools until until Nick Saban brought on Lane Kiffin and, and revolutionized that offense. I mean, that's why we had this the 9-6 game Eight years ago was because these were ground and pound teams, and the SEC was still known for their big defenses and and run first philosophy. And now a lot of other teams in the conference are using these wide open passing and run pass option concepts. And
1: this is kind of the exact opposite about how you see change normally come about in football. Is normally it comes very much from the bottom up that you'll see something that some lower level college or even high school coaches are doing that eventually will filter upwards and those people will perform really well and get hired to bigger and better jobs or their ideas at least will be adopted by people up in higher level college football or eventually the NFL and we've seen some individuals in the NFL and other colleges uh do similar concepts and we've seen some people at lower levels do them as well Dartmouth has a uh I believe it's Dartmouth that has basically robotic tackling dummies for players to practice tackling on sort of similar to the Seeker so that people can get more reps without the same risk of injury. But a lot of this type of stuff is either coming from above with Joe Brady bringing his concepts down to the college level um, or just kind of starting out here. Uh, Kind of the only other time I can think of something like this happening where we have these changes to the way practice is conducted and the the player health and training is done all at one place is Oregon under Chip Kelly, um, where thanks to Nike's resources uh, and Phil Knight's resources, Chip Kelly was able to kind of bring about a new way of monitoring players' health and wellness, whether that's monitoring their sleep, their hydration, um, and sort of other things that players hadn't thought of before. Like you think of the old school way of you, you don't let your players drink water because that makes them soft. That, that was gone at that point, but th- the increased emphasis on hydration in general and monitoring and measuring and quantifying it was something that was relatively new to uh, football at, mo- at pretty much any level um, when Chip Kelly started doing that. And th- this idea of bringing in the seeker, of shortening practices and changing the way you practice in order to reduce impact on the body. That's something that hasn't slowly filtered up uh, from lower levels of football. That's something that's relatively new and starting out um, at least as far as the public is aware with LSU here. Um, And as someone who kind of loves to see that sort of quantitative work being done in sports in general, that's great to see. And I wish that my alma mater was uh, doing the same thing. I wish my own water was doing a lot of things this LSU program is doing.
0: <laughs> like beating Alabama, number one. <laughs> That'd be nice, yeah. <laughs> Possibly the biggest storyline in this game beyond LSU's victory is, I call him Barrow here.
2: Barrow.
1: barrow.
2: barrow booty. That sure. Burrow booty-do. That Burrow booty I'm going to shut up now.
1: Th- that's the Heisman Trophy now. Whenever he gets presented to it, it should be. They should change the trophy.
2: It should be uh, his ass, his full it, moon. It should, it, it
1: should just be him running with the unidentified player's arm, just pulling his pants. Yeah, it's like the uh, is it uh, the the Morton Salt girl? Is she the one? No, that's Coppertone. Coppertone uh, yeah,
2: Coppertone Tone. has yeah. the dog with the biting the under or the bathing. Suit. Yeah, just
1: yeah. do that with Joe Burrow for the Heisman Trophy. Change the trophy.
2: Yeah.
0: I yeah, like so it. Sp- speaking of Joe Burrow striking a pose. He really looked like he was striking his Heisman pose over uh, during this game. Do we think that he is a lock to win the Heisman this season?
2: A lock? No one's ever a lock. I feel like the Heisman. I don't know. I'm not that I'm always surprised by who wins the Heisman. That's a little bit of an overstatement. But I feel like the player that's a lock at this part of the season or considered a lock is not the, ever the one who wins it.
1: I, I think we're starting to reach the point of the season where you can kind of get to lockiness, if this were three, four weeks ago, I'd for sure agree with you. I think we're starting to hit the point where we can talk about that now. And I think as long as Burroughs stays healthy, even if LSU doesn't win the SEC title game, which I think they would be favored to do against any any other opponents, they should win out until then. They're playing um, Arkansas, Texas A&M, and Ole Miss. They should beat all of those teams pretty comfortably. Assuming he even plays competently in the SEC title game, uh, and stays healthy through then he should get it. Like they don't even need to make the playoff. They can lose the sec title and miss out on the playoff. I still think he gets the Heisman unless someone else does something truly outstanding.
0: So there was a little politics in this game. President Trump was in the building. It uh, sort of became a big, uh, issue around Tuscaloosa, you know, people worried about security lines getting in this brief blow up where, uh, the student organizations at Alabama were briefly threatened with losing their seat access uh, if they were to do some sort of a demonstration that was opposed to the president. Um, but Luke, how did the crowd react to President Trump's appearance at this game?
3: Well, I wasn't there, so I I just got the, uh, you know, coverage on TV like a lot of us did. But uh, it was definitely a more positive reaction than previous crowds. Uh, But, you know, there was still some dissent, Uh, you know, the the searching through Twitter. You can always find people uh, dissenting the president. And so uh, I know there were some people that formed the the word impeach in the crowd and, uh, you know, uh, a cacophony of cheers and boos. What I think is really interesting is like. The logic of what you know trump has been going to all these different store- sporting events um because i i really don't know how much trump likes sports uh football is one of the ones we have like a better guess on since he did try to start his own football league uh or help you know other people who are working on starting their own so well he owned I mean, on a that... team in that league right exactly that's yeah so it's like football seems like a, a sport that he I actually probably enjoys is-
1: I personally like to blame him for making Georgia only have three years of Herschel Walker because he was the one who drafted him his after his junior year instead of waiting for his senior year. So I, it's a little bit of a grudge against him for that as well as everything else. Is there
3: really another thing we can hang on him for? Yeah. yeah, yeah, It's just like, it's amazing for a team
1: that folded after the draft too, thanks to his very ill-advised lawsuit against the NFL where he won (laughs) and was awarded a single dollar in damages. Are yep. you
2: kidding? Uh, I didn't know anything about that, but I love more reasons to hate on Trump, so bring it on.
3: Yeah, so, oh, Lord. But uh, I, I died. we we digress, not just me. We all digressed. Uh, the, the thing I wanted to get to, though, it's like this is probably the most political of his appearances, and not for like the traditional reason of like, I am going to go to the state of Alabama because I am worried that I'm going to lose it. No, like most reporters, like most people stated that like the reason that Trump was there that he just really doesn't like John Bell Edwards and he was hoping that Louisiana fans would be and Louisiana voters would be on TV and see him at the Louisiana game and be like oh yeah that's right I do like Donald Trump let's
2: now get look, rid of John
3: Bell Edwards now
2: look <laughs> here Trump you got to respect JBE for the fact that he came on. So I was still living in Louisiana when JBE took over as governor, and that was right around the time that the state of Louisiana discovered that they were missing, oh, somewhere in the ballpark of a billion dollars, um, which is part of why I was like, okay, I'm going to GTFO because I don't know if I'm going to have a job because I was working for LSU at the time, which is state run and is highly funded by the state you got to respect JBE. And you know what? Screw Trump. I, I'm i not surprised, but I am. It's just more of a reason for me to hate on him because you have to respect JBE for the things that he's done for Louisiana, considering he came in after Jindal had basically stopped running the state because he was so convinced that he was going to be, be VP.
0: Well, JBE also has strong ties to the LSU football team. I mean, there's been several videos that his uh, campaign has put out of him uh, showing up at LSU practices, throwing the ball to the receivers. Um, he uh, he, gave- he
3: greeted their playing after they returned to the state, after their win uh, this weekend. And, you know, I, I just find it interesting because, you yeah, know, the president's time is, you know, important theoretically, and the things he should be doing should be supporting, you know, uh, his efforts. and I, I guess I just find it funny that like this was like their what they thought would be the most effective way to support um, you know, the defeat of John Bell Edwards. And uh, it, you know, it seems like that's even more important for Trump now that uh, Matt Bevan uh, lost. And so it, it'll be interesting to to watch and and see. I, I just doubt that if if John Bell Edwards uh, does not win, that the history books will say it was because Donald Trump showed up to the LSU Alabama game. Crazier things have happened, though.
1: I mean, ever since the That's Kingfish, true. there's been a connection between the governorship of the state of Louisiana and the success of the LSU football team. So Fair enough. in any other state, I might agree, but with Louisiana, who knows?
3: Sh- shall we go to the dogs?
1: Let's, yeah. And to talk about a completely different style of game.
3: Yes.
0: One kind of cool moment that I uh, saw on Twitter about the Alabama LSU game before we go and talk about the dogs, Jack Patterson, who is a young sports reporter, he works at WRBL down in Columbus. Um, There was this great video that ended up on his Twitter feed of him doing the stand-up report for the TV station down there on the sideline uh, following the Alabama LSU game, and he stops in the middle of his report, he's like frustrated, he said something wrong. And then Marty Smith, a longtime reporter from uh, ESPN does used to do NASCAR now does SEC network, came up and gave him like great advice and great encouragement. And the, the camera happened to be rolling throughout The entire exchange and they got a picture and then Marty Smith walks off and this reporter looks like he's just been graced by like one of his favorite people ever. It was just this like nice little joyous moment. And so Jack Patterson down at WRBL keep up the great work on your sports reporting down there. Um, Let's move on here to the Georgia game. So it now appears that LSU and Georgia are on a collision course for the SEC championship in Atlanta. The Bulldogs shut out Missouri in Athens on Saturday, continuing to ride a historically good defense while the offense was underwhelming at best. Um, So let's recap Saturday's game a little bit. But for the dogs, what's most intriguing to me is what lies in front of them, a trip to Auburn this weekend, and then an opportunity to answer the question of whether these guys can really beat LSU in Atlanta in December. John, let's start with you and just get your general reaction to how Georgia looked on Saturday.
1: It was really interesting to watch this game immediately after the uh, LSU-Alabama game and just to see kind of a very good example of what the SEC was uh, following that perfect example of what the sec now is because this was a vintage sec game uh, the type that georgia's kind of wanted to play all year much to a lot of fans uh, frustration it was a fantastic defensive performance against a backup quarterback and a not fantastic rushing game um with an offense that is just good enough to get things done but still had to Attempt five field goals uh, in order to put up 27 points. Um, yeah, it's a win and it's a clear and obvious win. We probably would have won even if Kelly Bryant was starting at quarterback for Missouri if he wasn't injured. But it doesn't do anything to address the numerous concerns that Georgia fans rightfully have about this offense and what it can and, more importantly, cannot do, which is do what both Alabama and LSU did just a couple hours earlier in the day.
3: So, John, for me, this begs the question because another one of the uh, teams that I just have on record just because they've been incredibly fascinating to watch is Ohio State uh, and Justin Fields. So is is this a sign in your mind that we should have kept Justin Fields, or uh do you have what i would say is my opinion is that like justin fields is an excellent quarterback that would not have fitting at georgia which do you think is more likely
1: I i think that no matter who the quarterback is if you're calling plays like this if you're trying to run a team like a 2010 or 2011 alabama a quarterback like justin fields isn't gonna make it magically explosive on his own because uh, you're not going to play to his strengths. And I don't really think there's anything to indicate that we would have played a different way had Justin Fields been our quarterback. Um, so I think that,
3: that's been, that been my thought, too. Yeah,
1: that if you're using these fantastic, uh, if you take these fantastic cuts of meat and then grind them up to make McDonald's hamburgers, like you're not going to get anything else. You're going to get a kind of crappy kind of pedestrian McDonald's hamburger. Uh, Jake Fromm still pretty good. Uh, like I, I think he's under relative to past seasons, but he's still a very good quarterback. He just hasn't been able to get anything doing when receivers can't get separation, when uh, you can't run the ball, when defenses are stacking the box because receivers can't get separation and you can't pass the ball. Um, this comes from on top. This doesn't come from the players themselves. Uh, we, we should have the talent to be better than this. We do have the talent that we should be able to be better than this um this isn't like our first year under Kirby Smart when we just didn't have an offensive line and no matter what we were doing uh, offensively we couldn't make anything work we have the talent now all across the board uh this is the coach's fault for being this mediocre on offense
3: yeah that was one of the other things i found really interesting about watching these two games back to back is that like if you took everything the commentators said about joe burrow and if you took everything uh they said about jake Fromm, and you just like removed the word heisman from the burrow conversations it would be really difficult to tell which quarterback they were talking about yeah. a lot of times joe because they're a very runner, very complimentary but apart yeah, that's from the only, that that's the, uh, yeah that's the only other difference
1: yeah um apart from that they're pretty similar like jake Fromm has the talent he has he doesn't have the exact same arm skill. He's not quite as accurate uh, on deep throws as Burrow is, but Burrow wasn't perfect uh, when throwing the ball deep against Alabama. Um, he was pretty good, but he wasn't perfect. That That's Joe Brady who kind of allows Burrow to do what he can do. And if Joe Brady were here at Georgia, which I would love to see, then maybe things would be different this year. Maybe We probably would not have lost to South Carolina and – this game was still would have been a win. It would have been a much more enjoyable, entertaining type of win that doesn't leave us worried about if we can put up any points on a very good Auburn defense.
3: Though that being said, I, I thoroughly enjoyed watching our defense completely shut out Mizzou. And uh one of the things that I am just amazed about is the fact that we have not allowed any running touchdowns. Like that was that was a thing that when i heard that on my television i literally rewinded it and be like did you ha- oh we actually haven't done that nope. as, as much as you know i i watch georgia games and pay attention i had not noticed the fact that we had not allowed that to happen this entire season which is insane to me no and then
1: towards the end of the game uh right when we we're trying to preserve the shutout missouri uh on the goal line you notice a lot of our starters who had subbed out earlier in the game and had Stayed out for most of the fourth quarter. You're talking about Tyler Clark. You're talking about Richard LeCount, Monty Rice. They come back in the game for that goal line stand. That's something that this defense apparently is very proud of. Is uh, First of all, well, saving, saving the shutout in this game, but keeping that... Th- the type of defense we were playing there down at the goal line very much said, we don't want you to score at all, but if you are going to score, you're not going to do it by running the ball on us. Uh, we're going to keep that zero rushing touchdowns allowed number. The next best in the country, by the way, in the FBS is two rushing touchdowns allowed. So no one even has one. We're we're the better by two full touchdowns. And this defense is very proud. This defense is very good. This defense is as advertised. Uh, this defense is befitting of the number six team in the country. Uh, we'll see later tonight what number that ends up being, or maybe it's already out. Haven't seen yet. We'll see where the playoff rankings come out. But this defense is why that's there. It isn't this offense. Uh, Which has all the talent in the world and is it being used correctly?
0: Well, and the way that this defense is played actually makes me feel a little bit better about what is coming this weekend. So, Georgia will go down to the Plains to play Auburn. And what I'm looking for in terms of where we're going to go with that game is these are going to be two really good defenses uh, facing off in this game. Auburn maybe has the best defensive line in the entire country, but one of the things that freshman quarterback for Auburn Bo Nix has been able to do is he has at times been a bit of a dual threat being able to run the ball. I think if Georgia's defense can put a stop to Auburn's running game and make Bo Nix beat Georgia with his arm, that's a really tough task going up against this Georgia defense for a freshman quarterback, even though Bo has played in a lot of games already this season. This you know, they haven't played Alabama yet. So this probably almost certainly will be the best defense that he has seen all season. Um, John, what are your keys going into the game on Saturday against Auburn? Do you feel like this is just the next step forward for Georgia on the way to Atlanta? or Are you worried about some missteps here?
1: This will almost certainly be the best defense we faced all year and probably will be all the way through the hopeful SEC championship game itself. Um, In fact, this Auburn defense might be better than either the Alabama or LSU defenses, which is who we would face in Atlanta uh, come early December. The big key for this game does come down to the offenses. Both defenses are going to be fantastic. That's how both of these defenses are. Uh, It'll be a low-scoring game. The question's really going to be, which team can put up any points? Um, I think Rodrigo Blankenship for Georgia does give Georgia a big edge here. Auburn's kicking game, They lost Daniel Carlson a handful of years ago. Um, They're fantastic kickers. So we've got the edge there on special teams, which this game might come down to. And the other big question is going to be uh, Booby Whitlow, Auburn's fantastic running back who's been sidelined with an injury for the last month or so, um, ever since Auburn played Florida back in early October. He's probable is what I'm seeing right now for him. Um, He's a fantastic sophomore talent that they have. Uh if he's back, Auburn might be able to run the ball a little bit on us. Uh, our rushing defense is what we do pride ourselves on. And without him, Auburn's probably gonna be made one dimensional. Uh Bonix will have to win the game with his arm, which I'm not sure if he can do. He is a true freshman. He did he's he's been big in wins so far against uh Oregon, especially in that their first week of the year. But that was a game that Auburn could have been up much didn't need to be that close. It was only because Bo Nix did not play well until the second half until the fourth quarter that's why he needed to play so well in the fourth quarter and he did he came up big but he's been very inconsistent on the year he is a true freshman and George's defense should be able to make him pay for for his inexperience uh, our secondary really has stepped up uh, their passing game they'll have a tough time getting separation so uh, Bonix is going to make need to make big throws into tight coverage into tight windows this game will be on him, assuming booby Whitlow's out. If he's in, they should be able to run the ball at least enough to buy some breathing room uh, for Joe Nix, and that's going to help them a lot. In terms of Georgia's offense, Lawrence Cager should be available. He was injured during the game against Missouri. Uh, after the game, Kirby Smart said that he probably could have come back in, that he was some sort of rib injury, I believe.
0: I think it was separated shoulder
1: which is something that he dealt with earlier in the year, uh, missed several games before the Florida game. So he should be in, and all of our other injuries that we suffered, uh, Trey Hill, um, Cade Mays, both went out for a time. They both should be back in for the game as well. So in terms of injuries, Georgia should be okay. We should be able to move the ball with Lawrence Cager. Most of Auburn's defensive strength is in their front seven. So our fantastic offensive line should be relatively healthy and ready to play. And if we can just protect Jake from enough and get just enough running room just to keep our offense from being one-dimensional, Lawrence Cager and George Pickens, who had a very good game against Missouri, should be able to make things work. And we should win, but it's not going to be easy. It's going to be a battle in the trenches. It's going to be a low-scoring affair.
0: So fast forward beyond this weekend, it does appear that LSU and Georgia are on a collision course that assumes that we can pull out a win against Auburn this weekend. A&M looks a little bit more manageable at home for Georgia. And then a game that will have implications for Georgia in terms of the college football playoff, but not the SEC championship race is the rivalry game against Tech. Tech is a team that's rebuilding right now. Uh, If we have problems with Tech, we have really, really big problems and probably don't deserve a spot in the playoff. But getting to that SEC championship game, Megan, from what you've heard about Georgia's defense, from from any of Georgia football that you've happened to see this season, do you have concerns about facing Georgia, or do you feel like Georgia's just another step uh, for LSU getting into the college football playoff?
2: So I think that in any case, it's always a good idea to have your team be prepared. And so I don't see Georgia as just like a bump in the road or anything like that. I've definitely seen Georgia play well this season. Um, And so I think that, you know, if LSU is really serious about, about this, then we need to prepare to bring our A game and prepare to actually beat Georgia. We can't just consider Georgia a bump in the road. I mean, Georgia also has, has had a good season, not a great one, but a good one. So yeah, it's, we can't discount them.
3: So uh, we were waiting for the rankings as we were recording, and they just came out. So according to ESPN, uh, LSU is number one, Ohio State is number two, Clemson is number three, and Go Dogs, Georgia is number four, uh, Alabama's five, and Oregon is six.
0: Where does Minnesota end up?
3: Uh, I only uh, I only got to see the top six from the tweet that I'm looking at. So if they're, I'm sure they're somewhere, but I don't know where they are.
0: Just curious. We won't talk much about Minnesota in this podcast, but they're having an excellent season. They're still undefeated, and the game that everybody circled as the game that, even if they had a great season, they would probably lose was Penn State. They ended up beating Penn State on Saturday, uh, so good for Minnesota. And great for Georgia. <laughs> great for Georgia, yes. It's It certainly is helpful for any of the one-loss teams that want to be in the playoff for the undefeateds to fall. Luke, though, coming back to the SEC championship game, from Georgia's perspective, you know, LSU has has this high-flying offense. They have looked dominant. They have probably the best resume in college football. But what they don't currently have that Georgia has and that Georgia has had lingering for the last two seasons is postseason demons to exercise here. Do you think that that mentality of, getting so close against Alabama in 2017 of getting locked out of the playoff by an Alabama comeback victory in the sec championship in 2018. Do you think that that gives a mental edge to this Georgia team?
3: It very well might. You know, based off the games we've seen this season, I feel like LSU should win this. And this is a hard game for me because I haven't mentioned this on this podcast, but like the two teams that I watch pretty much every week is Georgia because it's my school and LSU because I find their style of football incredibly fun to watch and the fact that they just are so relentlessly aggressive. Uh, That being said, though, I feel like our defense is really, really good. But the places where I think I've seen our defense have trouble, I feel like is in defending these offenses that like to go to the air and can do it well and so you know on on that front I think that LSU has a good matching of strategy and talent like they're they're performing at the level they should on both of those markers I feel like Georgia as John was talking about far more eloquently than I will like we have the talent we just haven't had the strategy to match the talent yet and the third thing I think you know, the third factor that I'm really curious about from LSU and from Georgia is that exact sort of like emotional, like, you know, energy, like how do they handle the struggle that this game is going to be and I mean so far LSU's just been so dominant this season and been so aggressive and been good at basically from what I can tell either pissing off teams to the point where they start to be incoherent towards them like Alabama was or just demoralizing them just because they just keep pummeling them or doing things which I really enjoyed I I can't remember exactly when it was in the game of LSU versus Alabama but when it was like fourth down and almost nothing and they just like purposely got a delay of game to just see if Alabama would go offsides like that kind of strategy like it's going to be a very cerebral game for uh, both teams and so I, I'm just really curious about how they handle it and I, I think it's really gonna be determinant about which team feels like they're in a position to win this thing because if either team gets really ahead like, being the comeback kid is going to be hard <laughs> for this game. Uh, and so I, I think I think the emotional battle is going to be uh, a really big factor here because just the strengths of the two teams kind of play against each other in a, in a good way, and so I think Georgia's definitely not just completely out and there's no reason to even watch it, but all else being equal, it's probably LSU's game to lose.
1: Something to keep an eye on in case you want to see a little bit of a preview for maybe to see how Georgia is going to handle this LSU offense um, is if you think back to the Georgia LSU game last year, which I was lucky enough to be at. I just can't get the image of of Joe Burrow well before his kind of coming out moment this year. This was kind of his first big game just running all over all over Georgia's defense. And Georgia's brush defense is fantastic this year, but we haven't really faced a quarterback that can run, uh, at least not close to the level that Joe Burrow can. That's kind of why we might need to look ahead to the Texas A&M game a little bit. Kellen Mond, the Texas A&M quarterback, is their second leading rusher. Um, he's averaging 4.3 yards per attempt. Not fantastic, but good enough to be a, a threat. And that's something that the the style of defense that Kirby Smart and Nick Saban They've always had a little bit of trouble containing a quarterback that has the option to use his legs. Uh, That goes all the way back to the Cam Newton and Johnny Manziel days. Nick Saban's figured out, made a little, helped a little bit with that. Kirby Smart hasn't shown that he's quite found out how to deal with that himself. So to see how we handle Kellen Mond in that Texas A&M game in Athens in about two and a half weeks or a week and a half. That's going to kind of be a good indicator to see if Georgia's defense can contain this LSU offense. Of course, LSU much more talented than Texas A&M, but it's kind of just a good litmus test to see if we can at least maintain our defense uh, and our the dominance that we've had against them. Then it gives us a shot against LSU as well.
0: Well, in a strong defense, facing a strong defense is not going to be something that's new to Kellen Mond. A&M has had just a brutal schedule this year. Starting the season with Clemson, they've already played Auburn. They've already played Alabama, um, and then they're they, going to finish the regular season against
1: LSU. Yeah,
0: yeah. So um, you you certainly will have a quarterback who has faced tough defenses when A and M comes to Athens. All right, so let's throw a little Georgia politics in here to wrap this thing up. We are Peach Pod after all. Um there was a little bit of sports politics news from the Georgia political world this week. Um the presidents of the Atlanta Braves, Atlanta Falcons, Atlanta Hawks, and Atlanta United, they have all formed a group called the Georgia Professional Sports Integrity Alliance, but basically the purpose of this group of Atlanta's major uh, professional sports teams, rest in peace Atlanta Thrashers, um, is, was to send a letter to state lawmakers asking them to legalize gambling uh, sports betting. Um, there is a push in state legislatures to expand gambling, whether it's through casinos or sports betting. i um, I don't know a ton about this. I know there was a Supreme Court decision that seemed to open the way here for sports betting. John, I know you've actually uh, heard a little bit about this or heard about the ways in which other states have considered the question of sports betting. Um, What have you heard about this and and what might we be able to look towards as Georgia might consider this same move?
1: Sure. Uh, Ever since the Supreme Court uh, legalized the ability for states to actually legalize sports betting outside of New Jersey and Nevada where it was already legal. It was a weird situation. Or I guess outside of uh, Nevada and when New Jersey petitioned to allow to legalize it. That was in 2018. There are 13 states now that have legalized sports betting. Um, and each of these states does that in a slightly different way. So this is very early in the process. I believe the discussion right now is to have a ballot item in the 2020 election that would uh, determine whether or not this is legalized. I think it would be a constitutional amendment to the state constitution, but there's a lot of different ways it could be implemented. Some states uh, only have online sports betting legalized. Uh, That's Tennessee. So whenever you want to place a bet, you have to do it on your computer. Um, You can't go down to a sports book and place a bet in person. Um, Some states, I believe, only allow in-person sports betting and don't allow you to bet online. Um, Some states do allow visitors from out of state to bet. Uh, I don't believe all of them do. It's a very kind of individualized process for each state uh, to see how they want to uh, run their sports betting. What it does for all of them though, is it does bring in a lot of money and it legalizes a type of gambling that is fairly skill-based. There are professional sports better out there who make their living Uh, betting money on sports so this isn't they if if you're legalizing just from a personal standpoint legalizing sports betting makes a lot more sense than legalizing uh, lotteries or other types of games purely of chance because there actually is skill here this is not throwing your money on the roll of a dice or on uh, the shuffle of a deck this is just like poker or like betting on horses at the track there is skill involved here So it makes sense to allow people to do it, I think.
0: Luke, this discussion collides with a lot of the discussions that we've been having on the state budget and on the 50-50 chance of a recession next year. How do you think this question of sports gambling or a constitutional amendment that would legalize uh, gambling in a broader sense, potentially destination casinos that has been talked about before, um, how do you think that that weighs on this discussion around state revenue?
3: Uh, I think it probably weighs really heavily. I feel like the casino conversation is one that we keep having for a reason and I think that the reason is that Georgia, recession or not, is already a state that is revenue starved. So like Republicans in the state capital are not insane. Like they, they understand that the government does require some revenue to run and that there are are benefits to finding new revenue streams. A primary benefit is you can do more stuff and not have to raise taxes, which is you know the big thing they want to avoid. And so I think the reason why we keep seeing casinos and gambling in general keep coming up again and again and again and again, and again is because of the fact that they need to find a new source of revenue and haven't been uh, able to wow. do it. So the reason why I think we uh, very well might see it from this particular proposal, besides the fact that whoever the Georgia Professional Sports Integrity Alliance hired to do their marketing is great at creating ironic names, um, I, I think <laughs> the, the reason why they like might be more successful is I know a lot of the more recent concern About allowing gambling has been based in the very real criticism that where casinos are, there tend to be higher rates of sex trafficking and other undesirable side effects that, you know, go along with gambling, not to mention, uh, you know, individuals who have addictions to gambling and casinos exacerbating those addictions. While some of those things would still be present with sports gambling if it's online sports gambling. One, most Georgians who are interested in doing it are probably already doing it, yep. and they're you know doing it in other states, and those states are getting the revenue instead of Georgia. And so, I imagine you know uh, people would like to. Uh, be able to, you know, contribute to their home state if they have to pay taxes, uh, you know, they'd be willing to do that. And that, you know, one, one thing I have seen that Republicans are very eager to tax is when another state is getting tax revenue off a thing, that the state of Georgia could get tax revenue on instead. And so, like, the, if this is just like, let's just do it online, everyone's already doing it anyway and now you're just like with Amazon you're taxing the Amazon sales now you're just taxing the gambling sales quote unquote that are already happening i feel like that's a much 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 stronger case than like let's completely reshape physical property and create casinos here where people will physically go i think it's just an easier sell cuz even the the horse betting which people you know, still has some of those problems, but not nearly as many, uh, like that's still like a physical alteration that changes the landscape of the state and, you know, has a lot of other externalities, whereas online gambling is pretty much already happening. And if you legalize something, you can regulate it, which I'm sure, uh, you know, the state lawmakers would also like to be able to do. And I, I think that is a lot more viable than casinos or horsebacking.
0: Megan, House Speaker David Ralston seemed open to this idea, like the good Georgia fan that he is. He did this while also getting a shot in at the Volunteers. He said, Tennessee, of all places, that's behind in everything, including football. They passed sports betting in the spring, and there's a lot of interest in that in that state. And in 2020, you're going to hear a fair amount of discussion here in Georgia Megan, is sports betting something that you would like to have the opportunity to do? Or what else is sort of weighing on your mind as the state may consider this question?
2: So sports betting is something that like, I wouldn't be necessarily opposed to doing personally, but I don't tend to gamble in general, I tend to spend any surplus cash that I have on theater. Um, So there's not really any money left for gambling. But um, that said, what I end up what I really think is that having gambling in a state is kind of a damned if you do damned, if you don't situation, um, for all of the reasons Luke outlined. Um, yeah, there could be some problems with gambling, but also for some of the same reasons that Luke outlined already, you know, Georgia needs the opportunity to actually benefit from the revenue that gambling brings in. And so like Ralston said, if Tennessee's doing it and Tennessee's, you know, one of our bordering States, then why shouldn't Georgia also be able to benefit? Um, so I I really think that we should go ahead and do it. I understand the concerns, but I think that the benefits outweigh the concerns.
1: The the big question that I have left about the support of this in the state is going to be what the universities say. Um, as you mentioned, all of the major professional sports teams in the state have voiced their support for sports betting. Um, that's because all of the leagues, all the major professional sports league in the leagues in the U.S. do support sports betting and the legalization of it because they recognize that this is something we can make money off of. Uh, They tend to advocate for some sort of, uh, some portion or some fee of sports bets on their sport going to the league in general, which is contested, but that's kind of what they, they want to see sports betting happen, so they can push for that as an additional way to make revenue for them. But the NCAA still is firmly opposed to sports betting. So and we've all seen kind of the influence that the University of Georgia in particular has on the uh, legislature here, whether it's the Kirby Smart FOIA exception that they've gotten or uh, other examples. So kind of seeing what Greg McGarity at the University of Georgia, the athletic director says, or what the athletic directors for other state schools, such as Georgia Tech, Georgia State, Georgia Southern, um, seeing what they say is going to be a really interesting th- thing to see happen. If they kind of take the NCAA party line on this and make strong opposition to the any potential bill, or if they kind of act a little quieter and give their silent endorsement to any sort of sports betting proposal.
2: Hey, guys, think of it this way. Sports betting allows them to actually pay their athletes, potentially.
1: They'd never want to do that. It takes money away from them.
0: Yeah, that kind of dovetails with the the conversation we had a couple of weeks ago. The, I mean, the University of Georgia has influence on that conversation also. Um, we noted a couple of weeks ago that Florida Governor Ron DeSantis quickly backed legislation that would have allowed players to make money off of their name, image, and likeness, while uh, Governor Brian Kemp, he would not comment on that legislation for us. Uh, but the president of the University of Georgia, Jerry Moorhead, is on the NCAA's committee that is trying to come up with their own rules that is trying to preempt some of the state legislation. I think to, just to wrap on this conversation of sports betting, too, there there are implications for Georgia, at least in a minor way, in terms of their relationship with the media and the public and in terms of what they have to disclose. Um, the NFL has really strict rules around injury reports. Um, but while the NFL has their own rules, it's kind of a wild west in college football. Seth Emerson from The Athletic was talking about this on their podcast this week, that Georgia actually isn't required to be super transparent about, for instance, the injury to Lawrence Cager as we come up to the Auburn game. Um, That would be a different story if sports betting was involved and the leagues felt they had to have tighter rules to make sure that certain people were not getting inside information in terms of... uh, Shaping and manipulating those betting markets. All right. Well, I think that is a good place to leave it. So, John Carolyn, thank you so much for coming back, resurrecting the misery index, and doing a little Peach Pod Sports with us.
1: No, thank you all for having me. Hope to be back at some point in the future as well.
0: And, Luke and Megan, thanks so much for taking a step outside of Georgia politics and talking football. Megan, congratulations to your
2: Tigers. Thank you. Go, Tigers.
3: Anytime. Good dogs.
0: All righty, guys, we will talk to y'all uh, next week. We're going to be back into Georgia politics. You're probably going to hear a little bit more uh, from us in our Peach Pod Bites that we're putting out this week. In addition to the sports podcast, we're going to be back kind of on the regular thing next week as well. So until then, take care and we'll talk to y'all soon. Bye. That's our show for the week. If you like what you heard, share the show with a friend and go over to iTunes and give us a rating or a review. It really helps other people find our show. We'll be back with another episode of Peach Pod next week. Until then, take care, y'all.